From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. May marks Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and also Mental Health Awareness Month. To mark the importance of May and how it intersects with our work at the ACLU, we are bringing you this conversation with Malaysian-American award-winning writer and audio producer, Stephanie Fu. Stephanie is the author of the new book, What My Bones Know, a memoir about intergenerational trauma and complex post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as CPTSD. In the book, Stephanie details her path of healing from the physical and emotional abuse she endured from both of her parents and explores the kind of trauma that she says had a widespread impact on her immigrant community growing up. She joins us today to discuss how learning her ancestors' history and the history of her community helped her reconcile her individual struggles. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely loved your book. Thank you so much, Kendall, and thank you so much for having me here today. We're delighted that you joined us. So you made a name for yourself as a radio producer at Snap Judgment and then at This American Life, just a small show that no one's ever heard of. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Long before you made a name for yourself with this book, talking about um, how to navigate trauma. And before we get into what you actually discuss in the book, I wonder what it has been like to almost redefine yourself as not just the Golden Girl award-winning radio producer, but also this person who's writing about hardship and healing. And I, I imagine this being something that was a choice for you to to fracture this quote-unquote, you know, facade. I think it's been really challenging in some ways, but really validating and affirming. At This American Life, at Snap Judgment, um, I mostly focused on telling other people's stories. And I recognize the value of the first person story um, by telling other people's narratives. And it was really hard to change that to my own and have myself be the subject. It was uncomfortable at first. And I think it was also uncomfortable to spend like four years on one story. This has clearly been the most meaningful work that I've ever done, the most impactful work that I've ever done. Um, It has meant so much to the complex PTSD and trauma communities. And I've gotten so many beautiful messages from people telling me that this book has given them hope, that it's changed their life, that it's changed their like that it's inspired them to get help, um, inspired them to redefine themselves as not broken. And I guess that makes all of that a good decision, makes it worth it. Yeah, I can imagine that being really rewarding after spending such a long time invested in sharing this story to have that kind of feedback. Yeah. Your book is called What My Bones Know. It traces your path of healing and working through years and years of physical and emotional abuse and neglect by your parents. Your parents were violent. One time you were thrown down the stairs. Um, Your mother attempted suicide and blamed you for it. They both abandoned you. You were left alone as a teenager. Your father sent you just enough money to live. So far beyond the physical scars you were left with mental and emotional scars, as it would leave arguably anyone, to be clear. 
Um, after years and years of therapy, you were finally given this diagnosis of complex PTSD. So to begin, just for those who are unfamiliar, what is complex PTSD? Yeah, so traditional PTSD um, can develop if you are exposed to even a single incident of trauma. Basically, your brain encodes certain triggers that it recognizes as truly dangerous. And if you're exposed to those, your brain sends signals to you that you're in danger and you need to like freak out and panic or dissociate or whatever it is you need to survive. Um, complex PTSD is when that trauma happens over and over and over, over the course of many years. And so the number of those triggers kind of swells and um, becomes like a larger constant fear of of the world or of other people and sort of damages your self-perception and the way that you interact with others. I can imagine receiving that diagnosis and and kind of being set on this like path to figure out how you're going to move through this. Uh, it can be really daunting. Your parents are both immigrants. As we talked about, you're Malaysian-American. I wondered if you could share a little bit about what you know about your immigration story. Well, my parents' immigration story was relatively cushy, I think, actually. Um, my um, dad came here sponsored by his company um, because uh, by a tech company. And so we were relatively comfortable, um, aside from the fact that we didn't have any familial support here. Um, we were the only people from my family who emigrated. And um, so I think that prevented me from understanding my trauma for a long time, just thinking like, I had it lucky, we had it lucky. Why did this happen to me? Um, and it took me sort of um, investigating our family history a little bit more, understanding that my parents were born during a war, um, the Malayan emergency that nobody had ever talked to me about, understanding that my grandparents had spent time in jail and prison um, unjustly uh, because of racism. And yeah, just understanding what my family had suffered through. Um gave me a perspective on why my parents struggled with mental health issues and then passed those on to me. So just right there, you mentioned the Malayan emergency. And I wanted to give our listeners some context so that we don't miss anything here. The Malayan emergency was a guerrilla war fought in then British Malaya between communist pro-independence fighters of the Malayan National Liberation Army and the military of the British Commonwealth. And I think it could also be argued that this then became a template for what we saw in the Vietnam War. It's important, I think, that people really recognize that what your family was living through was a really traumatic time for in their country. And all of this is important because it gets at what I'm eager to dig into, which is 
this concept called intergenerational trauma. And you spend a decent amount of your time in the book talking about this. What your parents and your grandparents went through shaped them, and then that shaping was passed on to you. I wonder if you could tell us more about the research you did around intergenerational trauma and also epigenetics. Why are immigrant communities so susceptible to intergenerational trauma? Yeah, um, I think we all buy into the concept of nurture, obviously, and my parents certainly were not very nice in the way that they nurtured me. Um, But what I learned is that um, intergenerational trauma is also a big part of nature um, in terms of essentially when we go through extended horrific trauma, um, our brain and body adapt to that. And our brain and body might tell us that we need to be hypervigilant in order to survive, or we need to dissociate in order to survive, or, you know, we might need to sort of hoard resources in order to survive. And that is literally encoded in our epigenome which lies, is like a layer that lies on top of our DNA and helps us, uh, helps determine which genes get encoded and which don't. Um, or let's, let's see, it literally helps decide which genes present and which don't. The fact that my grandparents and my great-grandparents had to suffer through such immense trauma, that was encoded in than in my parents' genes and in my genes. And I think that was really important in understanding, like after I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, I felt so much shame and self-loathing. Like this is my problem. It's because I'm broken. It's because I can't handle things the way normal people can. And then I sort of understood that this was not just my fault, um, most of it was probably not my fault at all. And there's so much in my genes that like I have absolutely no control over that are the result of poverty and socioeconomic and geopolitical conflicts. And so I am the result of, you know, colonization and poverty and um, a lot of the quote unquote mental illness that I have that is encoded in me was designed to help me survive because it was designed in much more dire, unsafe times. And the only reason why it's not working now is because I live in like a cushy, you know, down comforter American society. It has been difficult in times of peace, but it's been really helpful in times of like the pandemic, times of danger. It actually has helped me survive. So. Well, it's actually incredibly adaptive to instability and therefore it almost is, it acts as a superpower in times of duress. And it's only because things are okay now that it's a problem for us to continue to operate in this fashion. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And I think that can also help kind of take away the the shame piece of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I need to remind myself often 
that I am the result of a much larger context, like an almost global context, that it's not just me being crazy alone. (laughs) They first uh, studied this idea of intergenerational trauma on children of Holocaust survivors. Mm. And in 1988, one study showed that children of Holocaust survivors were overrepresented in psychiatric referrals by 300%. This is based on living through something horrible and dealing with the, the ramifications of that and how that exists for generations and generations. I mean, you can think about all the different issues in just U.S. history alone, whether that be racism, slavery, civil rights era, Japanese internment or incarceration, all of these different things that happen to our ancestors lead us to be dealing with this for, for generations and generations. So I, I thought that that portion of your book was so compelling and, and important and helpful to contextualize that, yes, Stephanie Fu, this per- single individual, is dealing with this, but it's actually so, so much bigger than you. Yeah. And if you think about that statistic um, about children of Holocaust survivors struggling, like, is that really surprising? That seems obvious to me, especially now. It seems like, obvious to of me course. too. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, th- there was a study that analyzed that um, the FKBP5 gene, um, which helps control stress regulation, was literally altered in, in that population. So again, it was nature. It's both nature and nurture. Wow. Yeah, it, it really makes you feel like uh, you know, how do we unravel all of this? Um, I thought a lot while reading your story that there are these macro and micro problems. In my in my mind, a macro problem is America's immigration system or the U.S.'s interventionist foreign policy. And a micro problem is what I was literally reading on the page. It was you reconciling the abuse that you endured and how you are finding healing and macro problems, I think, oftentimes cause micro problems, but they are all together inextricably linked because mm-hmm. whatever we do on a micro level ends up becoming a, a macro level. Right. Um, in this way, I really thought about like the families trapped on the border, kids who have yet to be re- reunited with their families. I wonder if this was a conscious effort of yours to use your story and the story of what your family went through to tell this bigger story about immigrant kids, about people who had survived wars, people who had survived other mass atrocities in our history. Yeah, absolutely. It was really important um, for me to describe that this was not just like an isolated familial problem. This was a communal problem. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the macro and the micro problems and understanding that, you know, we can't really totally heal from the micro problems unless we heal the macro problems, right? Right. Which is why, you know, systems need to be fixed in order for, you know, individuals to make these big changes in their lives. Right. Like I I wrote in the book about how um, survivors of continual um, racism— 
Um, people who experienced many, many racial microaggressions have changes in their brain that make their brains look like people with complex PTSD. Um, I don't want to diagnose them with complex PTSD, but like, you know, there's something there. Um, and so how is someone supposed to feel safe? How is someone supposed to heal from that trauma if they're constantly re-experiencing it? If they're constantly experiencing racism, you know, how is someone whose family was um, enslaved or someone whose family was displaced, um, like indigenous peoples in this country, if they don't have that land still, if they don't have support, if they don't have resources and they're still struggling um, financially and with health and all of this from like our broken racist systems, how are they ever supposed to really heal and thrive and feel safe? They aren't safe, you know? In order to heal this mental wound, we need to care for each other better as a society, as a country. Yeah, I mean, it's really only possible for people to heal if there is safety. And so many people exist without safety in the world, in our own country, in our own neighborhoods and communities. I want to turn to talking a little bit about um, what you wrote about your own community and what you witnessed growing up that I think at some level you perceived as normal. Mm -hmm. But then perhaps only when you were removed from that community did you realize that, oh, wait, maybe this wasn't how everyone grew up. I was wondering if you could read the passage from your book, uh, starting, on, believe, on page 146. Yeah. We would debate the logistics of our abuse. Was it better to be whipped with something narrow, like a cane, or be hit by something large and solid? Was a welt more painful long-term than a bruise? Was it more demoralizing to be belittled or simply ignored? Our parents knew what it was to be hungry. Our parents were refugees. There were pages of Nguyen's in our yearbook and a wave of trans. Their parents remembered living in camps. Sometimes they spent all their money as soon as they got it because they remembered what it was like to lose your life savings in a month, in a week, in a moment, when a dictator rises or a bomb falls. Our parents were alone. Many of them had brothers or sisters or parents back home whom they rarely saw, and so they had to take care of their children without the support of the large families that many of the white kids had. Some of our parents were undocumented. Even though they should have felt power and safety in numbers, in our majority-minority status, they never forgot that they were guests here. Our parents didn't talk about loss. Sometimes, once in a long while, they might offhandedly mention soldiers or a violent father— but nobody ever said anything about what must have happened. Abuse, sexual assault, the traumas of poverty and war. But even at a young age, without understanding what these things were, we sensed them as we kicked our way through the currents of our day. We could feel it looming somewhere large and dark beneath everything, our parents' pain. So when the hands came, we offered our cheeks. We offered ourselves as conduits for their anguish because they had suffered so we wouldn't. So we could watch Saturday morning cartoons and eat sugary cereal and go to college and trust the government and never go hungry. We excused all of it, absorbed the slaps and the burns and the canings and converted them into perfect report cards to wipe away our parents' brutal pasts. We did the work, as they like to say now. 
We got into good colleges, got internships and postdocs, and eventually moved into successful, rewarding careers in big cities that paid us enough money to buy high-end audio gear for our modernist apartments. We achieved the American dream because we had no other choice. Wow. Thank you so much for, for reading that for us. And, you know, something that I felt when I first read that passage was this theme of how you all were enduring this abuse that had been passed down to you and in turn turning it into something that was invisible, unseen, and actually papered over by excellence. And to me, in so many ways, it it reflected kind of this problem that we have with what what do we deem as the model minority myth. This idea that being a member of a minority demographic in a majority culture can't be that difficult because of the perceived success of that model minority. Was that intentional to you that that so much of this could be fractured for everyone else around who who might be perceiving this excellence as just simply excellence? Yes. Um, well, first of all, just like the the term model minority is so gross just because like that insinuates that there are not there are unmodel minorities, which gross, gross, gross. But yeah, I think, you know, what prevented me from getting healing this whole time was this idea that, yeah, that I was part of a model minority, that I was privileged, that, and that like my excellence papered over everything that I had been through because I did. And that you had to paper over it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You felt an obligation to for your, for your family at some level. (sighs) Probably. I mean, it it was just taught from a very young age that like, this is, this is like the primary value of your life is you have to be excellent academically, successfully. That's how, that's the whole purpose of living. Like that's how we paper over everything that we've gone through and become worthy individuals, you know? And so it allowed and and it worked because we live in a capitalist society right where in my 20s when i when a lot of things in my life were a hot mess it didn't matter cuz everyone was like oh but you're a producer for an npr show and you're 23 like wow you have it together for my whole career that the the excellence was all anybody saw and so i believe that i must be okay how could i possibly be broken, even though I felt broken all the time. The model minority myth really prevented me from getting help earlier because I think that as a community, we weren't as well resourced because people assumed because of our grades and our performance and our obedience that we were all fine and good and dandy. And if they had looked even a little bit harder, they would have seen the bruises you know it, that was fascinating to me reading that when you went back to your school that your teachers almost had this idea that none of this was actually 
impactful, that none of this had had hurt students. If I remember correctly, like one person you met on your visit back to your school that actually admitted that this was true, that that kids were enduring this kind of abuse and difficulty. That was stunning to me. (laughs) It was stunning to me too. (laughs) I don't know how you teach at a school that has thousands and thousands of refugees from Vietnam or children of refugees who were born in camps, you know, and you don't think that might have an influence (laughs) on their mental health. Anyone who's been to therapy knows that so much of therapy is revisiting your origins to try to figure out why you do or act the way you do or feel the way you feel. Mm -hmm. And I wondered about our education system. There's a lot of debate over how to teach accurate history to students. Would it have been helpful to have reconciled with the history of your collective past? You said that Mm. you went to a school with a lot of kids who were refugees from Vietnam, who probably were had families who were deeply impacted by the Vietnam War. Your family was impacted by the Malayan emergency. Do you think that it would have been helpful had we had we taught in our schools some of these stories so that kids could understand where where their parents or families were even coming from? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I just I it I wonder about that because I think so often, you know, we're just we're not taught any of this in in our school. Yeah, we did not cover the Vietnam War in our school despite having maybe a 30% Vietnamese population. <laughs> um right, which is wild. Um <laughs> and then you can see why, you know, culturally sensitive therapy isn't a thing if yeah. we can't in merely public education teach the history of of the students sitting in the classroom. Yeah. Right? And it's not like our parents were teaching it to us because they wanted to bury it. They didn't want to talk about it. They wanted, didn't want to pass on their trauma. Which is understandable. And, and it is understandable. And it shouldn't have necessarily been all their burden to share, though certainly I think that it would have been helpful. Um, but I know multiple people at this point who have learned more about their family's history and that that knowledge has helped them both heal themselves and also to have healthier relationships with their parents. And that's really important. And I can imagine that that is helpful in healing as well, right? To have this deeper understanding and then be able to perhaps even address it with, with family. I think community is really important. And if knowledge of what we went through helps us be able to empathize more and um, be vulnerable more with and communicate better with our community, then that can only be a good thing. I wanted to read one other piece of of your book that struck me. Uh, It is, for a long time, this was the story I remembered about my childhood. I told myself it was not worth dwelling on. It was what it was. It was the price you paid for growing up in the Valley of the Heart's Delight, which is what they then 
called San Jose, I believe. My -hmm. story was the same as everyone else's story, but now I wasn't so sure. So what hit me there was I told myself it was not worth dwelling on. I can imagine that there were many times writing this book where you felt, maybe I shouldn't share this. Maybe I don't want to share this. I don't want to do this. It's excruciatingly hard to share about abuse of any kind. It's excruciatingly hard to just share the truth of our lives in general. Um, But it is one of the things that makes abuse so powerful is this silencing effect. And especially when you think, oh, well, maybe this is not a big deal. You just start, you know, gaslighting yourself. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you kept the courage to share and what you thought at the end of the day was your purpose in sharing your story, but also the story of your community. I mean, currently in the book, I probably only have like 50 pages of like child abuse, um, maybe a little bit more than that. Because I really wanted the majority of the book to be about the adult process of healing. But in the first draft, it was only like mm, 15, 20 pages. And uh, yeah, I think it's because I didn't want it to be like a triggering trauma book. But, you know, my editor was like, you can't, nobody's going to buy into your story of healing unless they understand what you're healing from. I was like, I don't want to. Uh, and also because it's really hard to write about that stuff um, to try and make it, I don't know, lyrical or palatable or whatever. Um, and also hard because I'm so dissociated from it that I don't, there are things that I just don't remember. And like, I don't, it's hard for me to understand how I felt at the time. I don't really remember that. I know we didn't get to fully dig into your healing process here. Um, but you have been and are such a resource for people reckoning with trauma, trying to heal CPTSD. So before we part ways, I would just love to hear what recommendations you might have for people who are really resonating with this conversation and um, are in that spot where they don't exactly know where to go next. Yeah, I think... um... Like the first step for me, which I think was a really good, important first step, was uh, mindfulness and meditation. If you if meditation doesn't resonate with you, that's totally fine. But just sort of getting some good mindfulness skills in terms of when I'm triggered, being able to calm down my brain and body a little bit so I can sort of get my logical brain back online. Um I think um, EMDR was a little bit helpful. Um, uh, Psychedelics were definitely helpful. I think having a really good therapist is super important. Um, I know it's super hard to find one right now. The kind of therapy that was most impactful for me is called rupture repair therapy. And it's not practiced everywhere, but if you can find a rupture repair therapist, I think they're pretty great. And, um, I hope that more people get trained in it. Um, so those are just a few different ideas. Also something that brought me a lot of comfort when I was really struggling was the book, how to do nothing. And, um, the book breeding sweetgrass, because I do think that like engaging with nature and sort of horticultural therapy is has been really beneficial to me and I hope would be beneficial to a lot of other people as well. 
a couple of quick trauma books that I like also. Um, uh, Journey Through Trauma by Gretchen Schmelzer is my favorite trauma book because it, it's clearly written by someone with trauma. So it's like very gentle and handholdy in a nice way. Um, and um, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, I think is really great for um, specifically women and sexual abuse survivors. Um, it really is so validating. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing all of those resources with us. I think those books, the therapies, the modalities, your book, all good, helpful things for people to, to dig into if, if this resonated. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Kendall. And this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.